Attention crew, this is your Captain Caliban speaking. This is a supplemental episode of Enterprising Individuals, where we bring you news and tidbits from the world of Trek, also interviews with special guests, and a few little surprises along the way. Well, the show's back up to full speed after recovering from some equipment problems, uh, not an auspicious start to our fourth season, but it's not going to hold us back, and we're blasting out of the gate. You can hear our recent Trek news show that released this weekend. We're trying something a little different there. I'm joined on that episode by Mikan Hanna of the Just Enough Trope podcast to break down recent Trek news. And we specifically detail the various Trek series, either in development or production, so check that out. Today's episode is a more traditional supplemental episode. Last week I talked with Lee Sargent about The Devil in the Dark and its depiction of the Horda, one of the stranger aliens encountered by the crew of the Enterprise on their five-year mission. Okay, so hold that thought. Uh, Last season of the show... Uh, Our last regular episode, I had Alan Gratz on to talk about Threshold, the quote-unquote worst Trek episode of all time, Uh, asterisk, as I think we proved on that show. During that show, I brought up a paper that had been published in a scientific journal early last year. The paper made the news uh, as an example of the unethical practices of some scientific and medical journals. They'll publish a paper for a flat monetary fee without any kind of real review, uh, and they'll do it on any subject. Uh, The subject in this case was rapid genetic and developmental morphological change following extreme celerity, or for the layman, why you'll turn into a salamander if you break the warp 10 barrier. That paper was written by the pseudonymous Biotrecki, the identity of whom Alan and I speculated on greatly to no avail. I can say one thing for sure, though. My guest on today's episode, Dr. Mohamed Noor, is not Biotrecki. He is a professor of biology at Duke University and the dean of natural sciences for Duke's Trinity College of Arts and Sciences. But Biotrecki? Who, him? <laughs> nah, nah, man. Keep looking. I talked to Dr. Noor about biology and science and Trek, about how when we finally meet aliens like the Horda, we might not recognize them as sentient life. And yes, we talk about that episode of Voyager. After my talk with Lee Sargent last week about The Devil in the Dark and that episode's theme of life not always being what we might expect, I thought there'd be no better follow-up than to hear from a real-life biologist about what aliens might really look like. And Dr. Noor was happy to oblige. I never did hear back from Biotrecky, though. That's weird. Here's my interview with Dr. Noor. Stick around after for a few announcements about what's new this year on the show. And with that, let's get underway. My guest on the show today is Dr. Mohamed Noor. Dr. Noor is a professor of biology at Duke University. He's the former chairman of the Duke University Department of Biology. And he's the incoming dean of natural sciences for Duke's Trinity College of Arts and Sciences. And he's the recipient of many teaching and mentoring awards. He's also the author of Live Long and Evolve, What Star Trek Can Teach Us About Evolution, Genetics, and Life in Other Worlds. Dr. Noor, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. It's good to have you aboard. I always ask new guests on the show how they first became Star Trek fans. How did you first discover Star Trek? So I was about eight or so, and I was on a trip with my parents visiting some friends of theirs, and it was just on the TV there in the background. I remember sitting there watching and thinking, wow, this is really interesting. What is this? And they told me it's the Star Trek. And when I came home, I said, I, I want to watch this show. So I found out you know, through the TV guide or the TV week thing through the newspaper when it was on, and I just started watching it. And 
went from there. <laughs> and was it initially something, did you have an interest in uh, science, uh, even as a kid, were you fascinated by the, the science and science fiction you were seeing? I definitely always loved science fiction. You know, I, I remember as, uh, when I was very young, I used to love the cartoon Star Blazers. Uh, like, yes. Do you remember that? That was really fun. <laughs> I remember that one. Sure, yeah. It's not uh, exactly Star Trek, but, <laughs> no, but it's, uh, it's definitely, yeah. Yeah, uh, I always enjoyed, um, I enjoyed Star Trek for the same reason, but I always enjoyed um, Star Trek, or excuse me, uh, sci-fi cartoons and that sort of thing. And they always seem to have, a, you know, an adventure bent, uh, yes. you know, Star Wars, yes. you're, you're shooting things, uh, yes. you're fighting the evil empire. Yes. But uh, Star Trek was so different because it was, you know, they were trying to not fight. They were trying to not get in trouble no, with exactly. people and trying to smooth things out. Yeah, Exactly. I mean, that was actually the contrast to everything else I had watched up until that point. The point wasn't just, you know, we're being hunted and shot at or we're hunting other people and shooting at them. But this idea of exploration was really interesting. And, and you know, incorporating social issues into it was also, even though I was pretty young, I still thought that was very interesting. So I was, I was very much drawn in by it. And, you know, I kept going with the later series with Next Generation. Though I have to admit, I almost dropped it after the second season of Next Generation. <laughs> <laughs> I came back after that for the rest of it and for Deep Space Nine, Voyager Enterprise, and now Discovery. It's been great. <laughs> I'm glad that you stuck around. I can see uh, or I understand if you didn't want to, but yeah, it's definitely worth staying for. Um, and it's just so – I always reflect on how amazing it is that this idea that this guy Gene Roddenberry had uh, was able to last so long, not just because it's a great idea, but because it's able to adapt to society and to what we're facing and you can you can do so many things with this very simple premise of exploring the stars oh, i completely agree what i've also been impressed about now as i've gotten to be a scientist obviously this wasn't my first impression when i was eight but as i've gotten to be a scientist i'm always very impressed how up to date it often is on the science like if you go back to the original series for example there's no mentions of genetics almost at all which makes sense because i mean we didn't really know that much about say molecular biology or genetics at the time with that air but when you look, right. when you look, you know, present day, you know, something like a quarter of episodes of Enterprise mentioned something genetics, and you know, a lot of them talk about genomes and genome sequencing. And they actually refer to even studies sometimes, like, wow, this is really on top of it. They actually have science advisors contributing to the content, which is very impressive. And we'll talk about how accurate uh, they are or not, <laughs> or, or, or they're not, uh, as we go forward here. Yeah, but uh, your work, of course, deals with a different sort of gene than most Trek fans would know. Uh, not Gene Roddenberry, but in this case, biological genes, genetics, and evolutionary biology. Yep. And I've heard time and again stories of scientists, uh, astronauts, people studying and working in STEM fields, that it was Star Trek and science fiction that initially sparked their interest in science and research. Um, and I've talked to a few of them on this show. You talked about your sort of early love of science and your, your love of Star Trek. I mean, did that influence you to study uh, genetics and where you're, where you're uh, at now? I wouldn't say it directly influenced me. It certainly reinforced the idea that it's okay to be nerdy, it's okay to love science and to like this idea of exploration. But I don't think there was a direct link between, say, watching Star Trek and deciding to go into biology or genetics. But like I said, it did reinforce it and it did validate it in a way, which was nice. Most people who uh, have gone through high school or, or gone through college uh, and have studied biology are probably familiar with genetics through uh, little plastic tubes, yep. uh, rotten bananas, and uh, fruit flies. <laughs> Can you talk about your work with fruit flies? Oh, so actually, I do work with fruit flies, as you mentioned. Um, I'm very interested in what are the genetic changes that lead to the formation of new species. So why is it, for example, you have two fruit flies that maybe look identical, and maybe in their DNA sequence, they differ at only like you know, 1% of the, of the letters that are there, but yet they're considered to be separate right. species. Maybe the hybrids are sterile, or maybe they prefer mate with their own type. So we try to understand what are those changes and what are the evolutionary forces that cause them to come about. 
Sure. And why why are fruit flies a good way to teach students genetics? Well, fruit flies are great because their their life cycle is really fast. I mean, you can have the regular Drosophila melanogaster, the typical lab fly, you can have a generation in ten days, which is great. I mean, there's often a myth people often out there say, like, don't fruit flies live one day? I don't know where that came from. That's absolutely not true. <laughs> but, <laughs> like the mayfly or, yeah, may, yeah. I don't know. But it's egg to adult is 10 days, and then they can live for a month or, or even more than that as an adult. But anyway, they're, they're, it's, a, it's a fast generation time. They have a small genome, so it's, it's easy to actually I – mean, this wasn't true initially, but now we can actually whole genome sequence them for almost nothing. Um, they're, just, they're just very easy to work with. And honestly – People don't care what you do to them. So if we kill a lot of them, it's okay. Yeah, I <laughs> yeah, I always felt bad about having to put them to sleep and yeah. then you know, sort of pour them out into yeah. a tray and they're just, just so helpless there. Yeah. Are there any other uh, insects or, or life forms that um, we also use uh, in, in studies like this? There are many model systems. So another popular one is called C. elegans. It's a, it's a very small worm. It has a very quick life cycle. The, the interesting thing with that worm is it has males and hermaphrodites rather than males and females. And the hermaphrodites can actually self-fertilize. And that's what most of them are. They're just hermaphrodites and they self-fertilize. But every now and then they'll produce a male that can only fertilize the hermaphrodites. So that's one popular organism. There's a little weed that people use a lot. It's called Arabidopsis. It's a plant. I think it's generation time is like about a month or so. That's another very popular one. A lot, a lot of people work on yeast. <laughs> yeast are very fast. They don't have very interesting behaviors, though. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> I know that, uh, you know, this all got started with uh, Gregor Mendel working with pea plants. Yep. Is that just what he had, or did he select pea plants specifically for some characteristic that they had? I, I mean, I don't know for sure. I would assume it's just since, you know, they were in a monastery, they had a garden, they had peas, and he saw those interesting That's traits. Right, yep. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> Well, uh, that, and you can eat uh, your science after you're done. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's something that I've been looking forward to asking you about, and sure. uh, I think we should probably do it right right up top here. Uh, last year on this show, we did an episode on the Voyager episode, Threshold, uh, oh. an episode held by some to be the worst episode of Star Trek, although oh. we do examine that claim fairly on the program. Uh, on the episode, we talked about a news story that had come out earlier in the year about a published scientific paper entitled Rapid Genetic and Developmental Morphological Change Following Extreme Celerity. I'm very familiar with this paper. <laughs> yeah, okay. All right. Well, tell me more. Uh, as a uh, Star Trek fan with a good vocabulary myself, uh, I immediately kind of got an inkling about where that might be going. But the journal that published the paper didn't know, I think, that it was essentially an examination of the events of the episode of Threshold. Yep. That's exactly right. <laughs> the paper was published uh, by the pseudonymous Biotrecky, uh, but Biotrecky's contact email in the paper was UFP at gmail.com, and I haven't gotten any responses from it. Oh, that's too bad. <laughs> yeah. I know a lot about this paper, so just the title, as you mentioned, Rapid Genetic and Developmental Morphological Change Following Extreme Celerity. Celerity is just a yes. fancy word for speed. And it's an interesting paper because right. if you go into the, the methods section, they're very explicit saying, we employed a replicated, as in more than one, design wherein two human subjects were exposed to theoretical maximum celerity, parentheses warp 10. <laughs> it actually says that okay. in the paper. All right. And examine. That's pretty explicit. <laughs> <laughs> then they have a whole bunch of measurements that were taken. And it's interesting, some of the things in the paper, basically the results section just recounts the episode scene by scene. 
So it says, for example, right. immediately following a maximum celerity, human subjects exhibited somnolescence that was readily terminated with audible stimulation. Very fancy words, basically saying the human subject was asleep and it was, and you were able to wake him up by yelling at him, which if you remember, is exactly <laughs> what happened with the episode. You know, Tom Paris was asleep. And the doctor said, I think he's just asleep. Wake up, Mr. Paris, and woke him up. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> it said, Within a few hours, the subjects began to experience an unspecific general histamine response to normal environmental inputs. In other words, there was an allergic reaction to water (laughs) and subsequent reduced neural activity as in he temporarily died (laughs) basically again it just recounts (laughs) scene for scene everything that's in this particular episode the other thing i'm not sure if you mentioned this but the authors of the paper are tom paris harry kim balana torres kes ocampa i guess she doesn't have a last name Catherine janeway and lewis zimmerman who as you remember was the person who made the um emh hologram So the fact that this did get published yep. is an example of not all that great uh, peer review. <laughs> peer uh, review. I just, yeah, I just are, happen to know the peer reviews that this thing actually received. <laughs> oh, okay, can't imagine how I would know that. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't really know either. But yeah. we have to go into it. Um, and a lot of journals publish uh, papers like this uh, without any real, real review, just for money. Um, yeah. Are bogus or or lax journals a, a recent problem, or is the, has the scientific community always had to deal with them? They're fairly recent. I mean, in the, in the sense of decades recent, not not recent, like the last few months. Um, what happened sure. is about a little over maybe 10, 15 years ago, there was a movement that scientific papers should be open access. Basically, papers should be published in a way that anybody can be able to just see the scientific output without having to pay for the paper or pay for a subscription to the journal or be affiliated with a big university or something like that. That's a very good movement, and it's something I actually applaud very heavily. So the way for doing that is to move the cost. Obviously, there's a cost associated with publishing. To move the costs from, say, libraries and individuals who are subscribing to the, to the person who's actually publishing the science. And you can get from your research grants from the National Institutes of Health or National Science Foundation money to help you publish science. So, again, that part's all fine. But, of course, people got wind of this idea that basically I can host a website, I can call it a journal, and I can charge people to put their science up there. <laughs> yeah, so these are referred okay. to as predatory scientific publications. And they do a minimal or no peer review. In the case of the, the paper you were just talking about, I mean, the required modifications from the author say, the author should check punctuation. The author should illustrate the results with graphs and images. You know, was, that is not a substantive set of reviews, given that we just said this person grew a new heart and evolved into a lizard. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, I think that we've gone to something, though. I'd love to see a website, uh, not that tells you right away that it's not for real, but that uh, does this, like publishes uh, scientific-style papers on specific Star Trek episodes. <laughs> I think that there's could be an, a future uh, for entertainment, of course, not for scientific purposes. Of course. <laughs> I would love that, too. <laughs> I might contribute some. <laughs> well, okay. Right, well, I'll let you know. Uh, <laughs> they're in the process of announcing several new Trek series, and I think it'd be a mistake to not go back and explore what happened to those salamander babies. Yeah, <laughs> it was kind of interesting that their whole purpose is to seek out new life. They're like, oh, there it is. All right, bye. <laughs> well, okay, we saw it. We got to go. <laughs> Done. Like, do they even get scans of it? I, mean, I don't know. We didn't really see. Yeah, I, I think Tuvok says it all because he's basically like, I just don't want to talk about it. I don't want to know about it. Let's just yep. get out of here. Yep. <laughs> Not very scientific. That was a kind of a ridiculous episode in many respects. And it's interesting. <laughs> it, it, it illustrates the kind of thing that comes up in so much science fiction, especially with regard to mutations. So they talked about how these mutations came about. And this is in so much sci-fi where you see, obviously in comics too, when you think about Marvel with uh, 
the quote unquote, the mutants. You know, when you think of a mutation, mutations are like a random change somewhere in your whole genome. So we have 3.1 billion of those DNA letters in our genome <laughs> times two. We have one copy right. from, from mom, one copy from dad. There's a random change. The odds of that thing giving you superpowers or making something that's in any way good is infinitesimally low. I mean, the most likely thing, if you're going to have a bunch of mutations happen in some skin cells, for example, the most likely outcome is either nothing or they just are cancerous, you know, something like that. Or cancer. Yeah. yeah. But the, the idea that you would have things like mutations that happen not just in one cell, but in all your cells and somehow they're complementary and they work together in such a way that you can suddenly then change to a, a reptile or amphibian, or I think it was amphibian in that case. That's absurd. <laughs> but this comes up yeah. so much in science fiction. I don't know why. <laughs> yeah. You also bring up, uh, and you brought up the X-Men, so I feel comfortable uh, sliding over to that. Sure. Uh, you, you bring up in your book, Live Long and Evolve, mm -hmm. uh, what the, the misconception that genetics are are leading somewhere yeah that it, they aren't just you know a sort of a paring down of uh, features or genes based on the environment and that's something else that comes up in the x-men franchise as well is that you know mutants are the the next level of human evolution like you know one day we'll all be mutants but right now yeah. that's very scary for regular people yeah directionality in evolution is some is a big thing people tend to think that like oh this is the next step and this, like you said this comes up all the time we have no idea what the next step will be because that implies that we know what the environment will be in the future we implies we know the effects of a particular mutation you know that that's right. so infinitesimally unlikely that that, that would never happen <laughs> but i mean on the other hand yeah. i mean this is an entertainment franchise it's not like an episode of nova or scientific american so you know fair enough <laughs> sure right yeah yeah <laughs> well what was the impetus for uh putting together your book live long and evolve that's a great question so i i had observed a colleague of mine give his name is Eric Spanda. He's a professor here at Duke University. I, I observed him give a talk on the science behind Mass Effect at a convention at DragonCon ah. back in 2014. He also gives a very popular talk on the genetics of wizarding in Harry Potter and, and uses this to engage <laughs> students and convention folks and all sorts of other venues about that. And I thought, wow, this is great. I could potentially do something like that with Star Trek. So I spoke with sure. uh, Garrett Wong, who's Harry Kim from Star Trek Voyager, about doing that at DragonCon. And he said, sure, I'd have you have to give a talks on things like that. So I give him talks kind of like a couple of the chapters in the book. And at that point, I was approached shortly after that from the publisher. This is Princeton University Press asking if I had an idea for a talk for the general public and an associated book. Well, I have a couple of talks I give to the general public. One of them is on evidence for evolution. But my former PhD advisor, Jerry Coyne, already wrote a book called Why Evolution is True. And that's, you know, it's fairly new. It's very, very good. I didn't want to try to compete with it. I don't think I could write anything that was better than what he wrote. So she said, well, do you have anything else you do for the general public? I said, well, there is something. It's kind of out there. <laughs> <laughs> and I pitched the idea to her and she, and she went with it. Kudos to her. <laughs> That's great. I've talked to a lot of academics on this show who utilize Star Trek in their curriculum. Have you ever used Live Long in any of your classes? So right now I'm teaching a class called Genetics Evolution Star Trek, and this is the textbook for that class. <laughs> wow, well, sign me up. That yeah, it's great. great. It's a non-major course, and, and actually it's been a lot of fun just in trying to engage students. Now, honestly, most college students haven't seen any or, or certainly not much Star Trek, but it's just interesting doing it with you know, some sort of science fiction. And what we do is, you know, on one of the days we'll watch, say, for example, part of an episode, and then we'll talk about like, well, okay, well, this depicted this, you know, this particular scene, uh, you know, maybe they use the word dominant. What does that mean? Do they use it correctly? Oh, look, there's a horda. It's silicon based. Why is that possible? Why is that not possible? We use that as a way of sure. engaging them. But we've also tried to connect it to a sort of a societal angle. For example, we, um, on the first day of class, we interviewed 
uh, Andre Bormanis on Skype, and he was the science advisor for part of Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, things like that. And he ta- told us a lot about the behind the scenes and how he did the research to figure out how to portray things. And he talked about compromises he had to do at times because, you know, the plot had to go in this direction and there wasn't a scientific way to do it. So, all right, I'm going to just twist the term and stick it in there and hope for the best. <laughs> yeah. Um, when I went to school, you know, it was different, I think, than it is now. You know, we had a, the teacher would lecture, we'd had textbooks and hand written yeah. notes and highlighters and and now many schools have digital learning tools they're getting yep. kids are getting ipads um yep. you've got new techniques like flip classrooms and online learning and you can skype with your professor how do you see the classroom of the 21st century continuing to change as the years progress ah, it's very hard to predict ahead of time it's interesting you mentioned flip classes for example my my other class, not the genetics evolution track, but my other class that I teach, which is just a basic introduction to genetics and evolution, is a flipped mm-hmm. class. I think that works well for some venues, but honestly, flipped classes are basically what English professors have been doing all along. I mean, it's not like you go into an English class and the professor pulls up the, you know, a book of Shakespeare and just starts reading it to the class. <laughs> but there's an right, expectation yeah. that outside of class, you've already read it, you've already thought about it, and now coming to class, we're going to discuss it. And that basically is the principle of the flipped class. So it's, you know, it's a fancy set of words, but honestly, it's something that was there for, you know, almost 100 years, if not more, <laughs> in some sense. Sure. It's not so much in the sciences. Something that we haven't really touched on on this program previously is the state of learning in Star Trek's future. We see some children... Yeah using very simple, you know, AOL kids computers on Picard's yep. Enterprise, and we see Keiko's yep. schoolroom on DS9, and we see Hoshi yep. teaching exolinguistics, but we don't see many classrooms over the course of the various series. How would you theorize that learning would be different in the 24th century? I mean, they would have uh, access to much different tools than we do today. It's, it's hard to imagine because at this point we already have, I mean, just, just now in the last 20 years, we have access to basically all the knowledge of humanity at our fingertips. It's hard mm. to know, like, how do you build from that? <laughs> you know, what can be yeah. more than all the knowledge in humanity just literally at your fingertips? I, mean, I guess if there is some way to just immediately insert it into your brain. <laughs> that might right, like you know, data tapes. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. You have a USB port on the side of your head. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> that's something that and we have talked about that, about how uh, mind-machine interface is something that Trek has just sort of steered away from. And it's yeah, something that yeah. really concerns us today in our fiction and in our scientific development as well. Yeah, no, agreed, agreed. <laughs> but that's not uh, genetics. We'll keep it to genetics no, uh, and education. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and with the unlimited resources that the Federation has, I-, I would imagine that the nature or the purpose of education would change. Um, yes. Because anybody can theoretically with enough uh, education and skill do anything. There's no competition uh, in a sort of a capitalist market. You get a free tuition, um, and everyone would have access to education, uh, not just uh, monetarily, but also geographically. Um, yeah. You could just learn from home, I'd, I'd imagine. So hopefully uh, education would be dedicated to satisfy, satisfying the specific needs uh, of any student. I mean, you could really, sure. no child would be left behind, literally, if you had unlimited yeah, money no, and uh, time and class size. Yeah, it makes sense. And especially, like you said, it's a castless society. So, you know, there's, there's no right. need to pay for it. Everybody should have access. It's true. Yeah, you'd really have to want to drop out, you know, if you uh, <laughs> if you wanted uh, in their uh, society. Well, from Khan to clones to Jem'Hadar to the Zindi, uh, Trek has explored uh, storytelling potential of genetics and evolution since its inception. And something yeah. that I found fascinating that you talk about in your book is that the science of genetics was evolving, of course, right, right alongside the franchise of Trek. Uh, in yeah. the 60s, you know, that we were still trying to crack the genetic code, but as real world science progresses, we start to see it more in Trek plots like in TNG. Um, and there's this argument, at least in my head, 
<laughs> where we always wonder if Trek is predicting things like flip phones and iPads <laughs> and, and Skype, or if it's influencing the inventors and engineers uh, who push technology in that direction. And for me, yeah. the way that Trek uses genetics and evolutionary biology kind of settles that debate for me, at least for that particular field, in that the Trek writers are great writers, but they're not scientists or prognosticators, and their yeah. understanding of those genetic ideas runs a bit behind our contemporary understanding. You know, they can get a flip phone right, but they're kind of making yeah. it up when they talk about rewriting DNA or gene transfer. Yeah, yeah, no, it's true. There, there, there's definitely times when it's a stretch. Sometimes it's based on something that's right, but maybe it's not absolutely current. Because like, like you said, again, they're not geneticists, they're not scientists. So they'll, they'll go from things that you could tell where maybe they caught a press release. I'll give you one example from Star Trek Discovery, since that's the current series right now. Um, sure. They talk. They talk a lot about this uh, in the first season. They talk a lot about this tardigrade, and it, it obviously it wasn't a real tardigrade. It was this big spacefaring thing. It wasn't the microscopic organism that we have here on Earth. Right. <laughs> but they commented that the tardigrade has this ability to ride the mycelial network. Which, by the way, I'm not touching that whole mycelial network thing. <laughs> That's way out there. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. <laughs> but the, they say its ability to do that comes from having uh, extensive amounts of horizontal gene transfer. What that is, is basically acquiring genes from other species into your own genome. This is known to happen. And interestingly, in 2015 or 16, there was a study from some researchers at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, which actually had identified or had sequenced the first tardigrade genome and had found what they thought was extensive evidence for horizontal gene transfer. So that was really cool. They incorporated that into there. However, there was a study the later, uh, the next year well before the discovery episode, which showed that the researchers had actually made a mistake. And in fact, it did not have high rates of horizontal gene transfer at all. (laughs) (laughs) That probably didn't have press releases associated with it. So they were going off the press It's never quite as exciting to refute something than it is to announce something. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. So that that was an... it was a good attempt. <laughs> I'll put it that way. Are there other organisms that do show signs of, of gene transfer in the way that they were uh, thinking that the tardigrade did? Well, I mean, the, the tardigrade may have some, but it just doesn't have an unusually high amount of it. Certainly as bacteria have plenty. Okay. Bacteria swap sure. stuff all the time. This is part of how you know, antibiotic resistance can go from one, you know, from one uh, okay. bacteria to another bacteria. It's sure. through sort of horizontal gene transfer. Yeah. You have a section in your book where you rate some of the plots from Trek that deal with genetics or evolutionary biology, and you rate them as either gems or coal. That is, That's right. Uh, basically right or wrong, (laughs) but being kind. Uh, And I had a few examples of my own that I'm sure you were saving for the follow-up, but maybe I could run them by you. Sure. Uh, Something something that's a mainstay of science fiction and Trek in particular is cloning. Uh, Somebody's always getting cloned. And I had two examples that I was wondering about. Uh, In the TNG episode, Up the Long Ladder, some of the Enterprise crew members are cloned uh, from uh, non-specialized cells. And then the development of the clones is accelerated, so they're essentially mature. Now, this is, of course, science fiction, but... Would that be something feasible with real world, real world science to age up a clone or do they have to grow up the old fashioned way? I mean, right now we would have to do it the old fashioned way for sure. But yeah. is it conceivable that there's some way to accelerate it by, you know, inserting a bunch of nutrients and trying to speed up the process? I'm sure there are some actual physical constraints just in the sense that like molecules will only assemble X, fa- X speed. But I'm sure there right, is a way right. to accelerate in some way. So that, that probably is uh, at least somewhat true. <laughs> yeah. I think in uh, Star Trek Nemesis, and you know, the less said about Nemesis, the better. Uh, they literally <laughs> they have this clone of Picard, played by Tom Hardy, who will eventually yeah. grow to look like Captain Picard. And yeah. I think they just put the word "temporal" in front of uh, DNA or thing. RNA. <laughs> yeah, yeah to make they it, did. Oh, well, 
They did. That's, That's how exactly they'll do it. They it's interesting <laughs> yeah. to me, isn't Nemesis exactly the same as Wrath of Khan? I mean, in so many ways. Here's this person who's, you know, kind of the nemesis of the, of the captain. You know, there's yeah. this long plot of him wanting to get back at him. There's a beloved character who dies at the end. There's so many, yeah. I mean, In some ways, it basically is Wrath of Khan, but next generation. <laughs> yeah. They share a lot of the same DNA. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Something else we see a lot with clones in sci-fi is they're often an exact copy containing all the memories and experiences ah. of the host. And Trek kind of waffles on this. Sometimes a clone is a new person. Sometimes they're the same. I guess yeah. I was looking for your thoughts on the debatable concept of genetic memory. Um, that is, there yeah. being some aspect of memory that's either chemical or related to genetics. I mean, certainly no direct memory should be in there. And there are some ridiculous ones. So, for example, there was an episode of Enterprise where... Um, uh, they made Sim from Trick, Trip Tucker. And as Sim was growing, he was then remembering different things from Trip's life. It didn't make any sense. And, you know, was, this was made from, by getting some DNA from, like, Trip's neck or blood or something like that. Right. That, just, yeah. that made no sense whatsoever. On the other hand, <laughs> if you remember the, the clone of Kalos didn't actually have Kalos's memories. And they said they had to actually, you know, put an imprint of those memories onto there. So sure. that was that was a pretty good uh, illustration there. But I mean, your question is broader than that. Your question is like, can there be some sort of genetic memory? I mean, with the with the kind of inheritance we have right now, I mean, you have to think about it this way. Imagine that, you know, me as an adult experiences something. How would that get passed on to my offspring? Obviously, if I teach them, that's one thing. But how would that affect the DNA in my sperm cells? It's really yeah. hard to imagine a way that that would be true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> something like starvation, that may have, I mean, that, that's not a memory in the sense of like, I saw something and I remember it, but something like starvation, that may affect, you know, some chemical modifications of the DNA, which potentially could have some sort of effect that may go one generation, but actual memories of, of events, mm, no, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Like it depends on when your child is conceived, like you learn to juggle, uh, you know, one weekend and then the next weekend uh, your child is conceived and now your child would learn how to juggle. But your earlier <laughs> children, I guess, wouldn't know how to juggle. Yeah. And it doesn't, it doesn't yeah. make any sense. But it's, it's funny. I, I don't know why science fiction authors keep using it. It just it just seems like it's so uh, it's just obviously contradicted by what we know. Yeah. Even if it wasn't for the, even if it wasn't for the timing aspect, it just doesn't make sense. Like, how does this get into the DNA of your sperm cells? <laughs> yeah. <I> mean, <laughs> in the DS9 episode, The Quickening, the Dominion has released a genetically engineered virus onto a planet that mm -hmm. causes painful lesions and 100% mortality. And it's passed directly to the offspring. Babies are born uh, infected with the virus. Uh, Dr. Bashir develops an antigen against the virus that fails to save the infected patients, but it transmits immunity to the disease uh, through a patient's to a patient's unborn yeah. child, so is the founder's virus changing the DNA of the sufferers, or you know if Beth, if Bashir had the technology available, would he be able to use a technique like in utero gene therapy to make other fetuses immune? That's exactly what I think it is. It's the latter. It would make a lot of sense to me that in some ways it's directly affecting basically what's in the the gametes. Because then, mm -hmm. then you know, it, it makes sense because there's there's a much smaller number of things that you have to work with than as opposed to having to try to work with every single cell in somebody's body. If you work with the gametes, that's it. You know, it's getting passed on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Also, the virus is said to mutate rapidly in the presence of EM fields or energy sources. Um, other than the uh, completely real Andromeda strain, are there any other examples <laughs> of rapid mutation in the real and real world viruses? Oh, absolutely. Like HIV is one of the, it has extremely high mutation rate. And that's one of the reasons actually it's, it's very easy to track who somebody got it from by getting the, the sequence oh, okay. from the RNA, because you can then see, oh, this clearly came from this individual right there because of its very high mutation rate. 
On the other hand, it also okay. makes it. It's also one of the reasons why it's very hard to um, fight it off because it does mutate so rapidly. It's hard to get antibodies that work directly on it all the time. Well, speaking of Dr. Bashir, he was, of course, radically altered genetically when he was yeah, a child. And was. thanks to negative historical experiences uh, that we mentioned previously in the Star Trek universe, uh, genetic engineering has been banned in most cases. As real-world examples of human genetic engineering begin to proliferate, how do you see public opinion and governmental legislation coping with that? That's a great question. Because, again, like you said, this is not a technological problem anymore. At this point, we could actually start. I mean, I don't know about you know, people talk about designer babies. And I don't think we're at the point where you can say, I want to have a baby who's blonde and smart and do a genetic editing to make that happen. We're not there yet. But we are definitely the case where you can say that, oh, this baby has, for example, you know, sickle cell anemia. Or sorry, this not this baby. This you know, this person has the potential to have a baby who has sickle cell anemia. I'm going to go through and edit their gametes to make sure that their kid doesn't get that. That's very right. doable. And it, it's, it's interesting in cases like that, I think, you know, public perception will probably be very positive. Well, yeah, of course, you know, why would we want to, you know, force the kid to have sickle cell anemia? So that in that sense, it seems very positive, but it's a very quick, slippery slope in the sense of like, OK, how bad does it have to be before <laughs> before you actually right. say it's OK to intervene? Does it have to be directly life threatening? What if it's livelihood threatening? What if the kid is going to be perceived as ugly? You know, <laughs> that, you know, yeah. that's a. That's a dis-ease, if not a disease. So, yeah, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take a very long and tough conversation because now all of a sudden we have the ability to do this thing that it's a little earth-shattering in some senses if you, get, yeah. if you go too far with it. I think, I think it's one of the things, as is always the case, there's going to be like there's black and white and then there's a very long area of gray in the middle. Voyager has an episode called Tuvix, where a transporter yeah. accident fuses Tuvok and Neelix into a gestalt being they dubbed Tuvix. Yep. Uh, would Tuvix be an example of a genetic chimera? So I wouldn't call them a chimera. I think it's more like what you, what you refer to as a polyploid. Because a chimera mm. is kind of like, you know, some of the cells are one type and some of the cells are a different type. But in the case of mm. Tuvix, my understanding was that every cell had all of Tuvox genes and all of Neelix's genes. And there okay. are cases where, where two species, this is fairly common in plants, it happens with a couple of animals, but not nearly so often though, um, where two species will hybridize and they make something, instead of having just, you know, uh, just one copy from this species, one copy from that species, they actually have two of each. So basically like double their overall genome size. That does happen. It's, it's, it's kind of surprising that it works. And in fact, mm -hmm. those are often unusually healthy relative to normal pure spe normal hybrids. So unlike, for example, say a horse and donkey, where you know the, the offspring is mule and sterile, when you have the, these polyploid events, very often they're fertile and quite vigorous. So a lot of the crop plants that we that we work with all the time, you know, various you know kinds of wheat and cotton things like that, those are polyploids. <laughs> and so when it happens with plants, uh, you know, as you mentioned, it, it leads to, to a strong and robust thing. But of course, if something like that happened in, uh, in animals, that would be probably not, not well, a good thing. It does happen. I mean, it's known in frogs. It's known in fish. I don't think it's known with any mammals. So that uh -huh. would be problematic. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I played a little game of Stump Memory Alpha while getting ready for this talk. I was just entering every term oh. I remembered from my college courses in genetics and seeing if something came up. And I was impressed. They've covered a lot of topics in terms of genetics or, or at least oh, yeah. basic level. Memory Alpha was wonderful for me when I was writing the book. You've done the research literally. Can you say which Star Trek series uses plot lines about genetics the most? Oh, it's interesting that I didn't assess discovery because it's still in process, but I did analysis mm -hmm. of use of the word genes and things like that. And it was almost linear going across there where the, the least mentions were in, uh, in the original series. Deep Space so, Nine and Next Generation were pretty overlapping. There was a little step up with Voyager and there was another step up with Enterprise in terms of the fraction of episodes. So, 
sure. It just seems sure. like the, the more recent you get, the more genetics you have. <laughs> yeah. Is there a standout episode for you that really nails the science of what it's trying to tackle? Well, I mean, if they're using basic genetic terms, then generally speaking, most of the episodes do a pretty good job. So, for example, in Voyager, the episode Favorite Son, which is in the third season, um, that's the one where um, Ensign Kim gets convinced that he's that he's actually a Teresian or something like that. And right. they talk about yeah. dominance and recessivity and things like that. And they're, you know, their descriptions are fine. <laughs> There's a couple of little nitpicky things I'd say, but generally speaking, it's pretty good. I liked the episode where um, Seska was found out to be a... Um, a Cardassian rather than a Bajoran too. I can't, I can't remember the name of that episode. Was it state of flux? I think it was state of flux. I in think Voyager. So. Yeah. Yeah. That was interesting too, because in that particular episode, um, uh, they said that she, they said that she had, uh, she was missing all the common Bajoran blood, blood factors. And I'm assuming they did this through some sort of DNA test, not a blood test, but I'm not sure. Um, and interestingly, her response to that was that she had some sort of disease when she was a child and she received a bone marrow transplant from a Cardassian, from a Cardassian which is a little bit ironic. I'm not sure why you get a bone marrow transplant from an alien, but whatever. <laughs> like they find a majority to do it. But anyway, yeah. but that idea was pretty good because in that sense that like, you know, bone marrow actually makes blood cells. So yeah, if you got bone marrow transplant from a Cardassian, then it's true. Some of your blood cells should have these Cardassian factors in that. So that was actually pretty good. It turned out that wasn't the case, but that was, that was a decent yeah. idea though. Yeah. I think they do establish too that there is a fairly recent common genetic ancestor between the Bajorans and the uh, the Cardassians as well. Well, that, that depends on which episode you go by. If you go by uh, if you go by the the chase, it's not so recent. <laughs> well, that's yeah, that's farther back. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but just with like the proximity of their systems, and then I think it's yeah. uh, in Explorers where they um, prove out the idea about the light ships and being able to uh, go around yeah. before that's technology right. got that's up right. there. Uh, something else that you t we're, we're talking about it right now. Something else you touch on in the book is the prevalence of humanoid aliens in Trek, yeah. uh, which Trek tries to address in the chase, uh, yeah. which specifically states that a humanoid ancestor species seeded uh, some of the origin worlds of the show's familiar species with genetic material. But you, right. in the book, take that idea to task and you point out some yeah. implausibilities in that idea. Oh, absolutely. So that that's, I mean, it's a nice idea in the sense that it incorporates this idea of panspermia, which is the idea that life on Earth was, you know, seeded from elsewhere in the universe. And, you know, that idea in and of itself is plausible. We know there's, we know there's amino acids that are, that are found in extraterrestrial meteors when they lay on Earth as meteorites. So, yeah, okay, I can imagine some raw materials coming to Earth that may have led to, to humans. But this idea that, you know, humans and Romulans and Klingons share an ancestor for billion years ago that's absurd <laughs> I mean, we're just way 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 too similar for that i mean we are you know we're more we're more closely related to grass than we are to klingons and we're certainly not making hybrids <laughs> with grass <laughs> so yeah, i mean right. that's just an absurd <laughs> idea i mean what i thought worked a little bit better was uh, the episode in the original series the paradise syndrome where they said there were some ancient species which was um picking up primitive yeah, cultures yeah, exactly. They were picking up cultures in danger of extinction and seeding them where they could live and grow. So in that case, they picked up to this little group of Native Americans and they brought them to this planet Amerind, which is a little bit strange, but that's okay. Yeah. Or, <laughs> or actors playing, uh, white actors playing Native Americans. They, or yeah, or that, it was just more accurate. That's, <laughs> but now, yeah. if that had happened, say, for example, with like, say, Homo erectus, maybe a couple hundred thousand years ago, yeah, sure. Maybe they it may have sure. evolved forehead ridges or pointy ears or something like that over that time, but still be yeah. interfertile. So, yeah, that would actually work fairly reasonably. Yeah, I guess they overstepped then with the billions of years because that yeah, would be a crazy amount of convergent evolution. 
Absolutely. Yeah. There's no way. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in the book, you also reference uh, Stephen Gold's comments about uh, panspermia and just the idea that there are so many various chance events in That's an right. environment or in the development of a, of a biosphere that yep. could change uh, the, you know, the, the final result that we're looking at, you know, just the, the asteroid impacts on Earth um, clearly yep. developed or changed uh, who would be the dominant species on the planet. Exactly. Um, and I just just looking at that, like, I'd love to see, you know, if that episode went on for two more minutes, uh, you know, a race of dinosaur men beams in and they're like, hey, we got this weird program. Uh... <laughs> Maybe the Voth, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <Somebody> showed up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the chase is a pretty good episode all in all though um and Absolutely. even if you i mean you explained why it'd be on unlikely um but it's a yeah. cool idea and trek has a lot of plots about evolution and genetics but yep. like we said before it often kind of gets it wrong why do you think yeah. that the stories about genetic engineering and genetics are so popular but they're so rarely scientifically accurate well people like the idea of genetics in general right i mean genetics is very modern we and it's a way we seek to understand ourselves so in that yeah. sense it's, it's really cool i mean there uh, you know, I'm, I'm maybe being a little too big when I say they often get it wrong. They don't often get it wrong, but there, there's, you know, there's often errors. But I think part of it is just because they want to maintain a particular storyline. They want to have a particular kind of thing. And basically, you know, the writers are constrained where, like, this is the outcome we want to have. There's not a way to do it fairly easily with good science. So we'll just put in some pseudoscience in there <laughs> to push it forward. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. Science fiction. Right, right. Exactly. <laughs> uh I think uh, most of the aliens that we meet on Star Trek are humanoid. Uh, they have two yep. legs. Um, yep. You put some silly putty on their forehead and, and we're ready to go. And I think yep. that the practical answer is that, you know, the actors have to be humanoid. Uh, but would it be foolish for us to expect alien life to look kind of like us? Like is the, the bilateral symmetry and all the aspects and uh, characteristics of a, of a human being, would that be likely to be repeated, do you think? No. <laughs> no okay there we go so no, no, I don't it's all so. hordas it's hordas all the way down it's hordas all. No, i mean realistically you know, if we look at even life on earth the most common forms of life are microscopic that i mean i've often sure. joked about that the, with the idea of seti that people are like transmitting you know radio signals into space i mean that that's fine and you know maybe that will work i guess it's I mean, if it's not expensive we may as well keep trying that but we're way more likely to find life going to europa and sampling some of the liquid there and trying to find some microbial life than we are for somebody sure. to radio back and be like hey I got your call. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you up? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> uh, aliens uh, often come in different colors too on on Trek. Uh, if we yeah. do meet an alien race that's carbon based, uh, uses hemoglobin to oxygenate, oxygenate their blood, and they're from an M class planet, should we expect them to be pinkish like us, or are there just many uh, environmental factors that would lead to a blue or a green person? I think there's no way to know ahead of time because a lot of it's going to depend on the specifics about not only. I just appreciate their environment, your pragmatism. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, then get the box of crayons out and let's let's go crazy. Then uh, there you go. Purple, <laughs> purple it is. Uh, biology is you know just gooey physics uh, from a certain mm -hmm. point of view. Biophysics. So there's certain rules that we can expect organic molecules to follow, assuming that we're looking for life similar to us. Um, yep. But if it's nothing like us, as you suggest, uh, how do we even conceptualize then non-humanoid intelligent life? We see that even Kirk and Spock in the 23rd century have a problem with that when they meet the Horda. Yeah, that was true. And, and so there's two aspects there. I'll split your question into two. One of them is non, you know, basically life's not as we know it. And the other part is whether it's intelligent. And I, I'd yeah. say those are very different questions because it's much more likely that it's not intelligent than it is, at least by our definitions of intelligence. So it's interesting, interesting like, how do you identify something as being alive or having come from something alive? And this is an active area of research right now. There, a lot of the 
current efforts, you know, these are these are by people who are much smarter than me, who are you know biochemists, biophysicists, things like that. All the current efforts focus on complexity. That basically, you know, there's a certain set of rules, like you said, that that need to be followed. But generally speaking, life tends to be a little bit more complex than non-life, and in certain kind of predictable ways. And there's formula you can apply to that. And that's exactly the kind of approach that people are proposing to use when you when you say, for example, have a lander go to Europa and to assess if something is sitting in front of you, like there's this little thing that looks like hair gel. Is it alive or is it not alive? You know, is it just okay. one repeat set of molecules and that's it for the entire thing? Probably sure. not a lot. On the other hand, if it has a structure to it, but it's not just a simple repeat, then maybe that's a little bit more like it. And you can have this, you know, can basically make a probability of life from the complexity. Interesting. That's kind of troublesome then in the episode The Devil in the Dark that they immediately assume that it's alive, clearly, but it's not yeah. intelligent. And I wonder if they have a policy of just like, uh, this is in the way of our mining operation. Wipe it out <laughs> until they yeah, are literally be. confronted with it, begging them not to kill, <laughs> kill it. Yeah. And like, uh -oh, uh, what was it? No kill eye or something no like that? No kill eye. That's right. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, we should be sending that by SETI, yeah. Um, <laughs> as a, as a, as a sci-fi fan, as a kid, something that always blew my mind was reading uh, things like Barlow's Guide to Extraterrestrials and seeing uh, aliens that just didn't, you know, didn't have two legs or two arms or had radial symmetry instead of bilateral symmetry and just trying to conceptualize aliens in a different form than the red, blue, green, purple people that we see on TV. Yeah, no, I agreed completely. Completely. Well, before we wrap up, I wanted to get some of your thoughts on the way Star Trek Discovery is using science in its stories. Um, and science seems to be a real focus for the series uh, with exobiology, yeah. um, yep. exomycology, parallel realities all making appearances. The spore drive uh, is the big oh. ask here from a, <laughs> from a scientific perspective. I think you say in the book that the idea is creative, which is fairly diplomatic. <laughs> Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I think I think they've all been infected with mycophilia. Okay, <laughs> they, they love fungi yeah. way too much. <laughs> now, if you go back, yeah. actually, we can tell where this came from. So, if you go back, there's a there's a TED talk from I forget exactly the year, something like 2012, by mm -hmm. a a scientist named Paul Stamets. Interesting right. name because that overlaps the the astromycologist in Star Trek Discovery and. There's a lot, if you watch that TED Talk, there's a lot from that particular TED Talk that is actually directly worked into the series. So again, you know, they're, they're using some scientists' um, information to work in there. And I know this directly influenced Brian Fuller because he tweeted about it way back in like 2015 or something like that, long before Discovery came out. So clearly okay. that was the direct impetus going into Star Trek Discovery. Yeah. It gets, as is usually the case with Star Trek, it gets, you know, or with science fiction in general, they, it gets taken further <laughs> yeah. so probably the most problematic aspect is this idea like why should there be fungal spores everywhere in the universe they use that word right. universe all the time the universe is really 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 big why would there be fungal spores everywhere when these fungi evolved here on earth like what blasted them out so that they're literally on every galaxy yeah. <laughs> that, that, that doesn't make any sense at all so yeah and I, the spores the stelleviatory spores uh yeah. that they talk about are fictional but their genus uh prototaxites is is real so that's exactly right we can yeah, so we can presume, like you said, that they do have a, an origin, a terrestrial origin, which yeah. puts Earth in a very strange, very central position in the biogeography yeah. of the universe. Yeah. If we've got this spore that is everywhere, uh, presumably in our universe, um, definitely in this other universe, the this mycelial universe. realm, like yeah. why, 
what happened? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> yeah. I don't think there's any good explanation. There. I think there is just, you know, it's just a lot of, like you said, creativity. <laughs> oh, sure. You know, yeah. their credit. Again, you know, it, it is science fiction. So fair enough. And I, and I think it's wonderful. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's wonderful that they've taken an idea. It's not just another warp ship that's flying yeah, around. We've seen that before. Exactly. I love the fact that they're doing something really crazy. Even the inclusion of a space tardigrade is, is something that, yep. uh, yeah, it's just really, it's really neat to see. It was neat to have a tardigrade in particular, just because, I mean, those are things that can, you know, withstand extreme temperatures, extreme pressures, things like that. People often say yeah. tardigrades can survive in space. If you go back to the original papers that describe that, it's not like they usually survive in space-like conditions. It's just 100% of them don't all die, you know? <laughs> right. It's a nice place to visit that they don't live there. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, before we go, I wanted to ask you about sure. uh, the the popularity of these home genetic testing kits like 23andMe and just how you feel in general about the accuracy, the the safety and privacy concerns involved with them. That's a great question. So, I mean, the accuracy for, well, it's interesting with respect to where people are from. So in terms of lineages, people often used to say, oh, I'm, you know, this much French origin, this much Native American origin, this much East Asian origin. It's interesting because you're, your genes and your lineage are not necessarily the same thing. Like, for example, you could have an ancestor 10 generations back who was Native American and have absolutely no DNA whatsoever from that ancestor. Hmm. So this is relevant, for example, in the recent political discussions in terms of, say, Elizabeth Warren. You could have an ancestor like that, but, I mean, you could have literally no genes from Obviously, if it's like your parents, then you're going to have it. Even if it's your grandparents, you're going to have some DNA from them. But as you go further and further back, eventually you start getting to the point where, like, the contribution was so small and maybe it just got, you know, basically you just lost it a couple of generations back. Or your ancestor lost that bit a couple of generations back and you just didn't inherit it. So that's one aspect with that. Um, Hmm. In terms of health, most genetic factors we know associated with disease have very, very small effects. There are exceptions to that. So for example, the BRCA1 and BRCA2 mutations associated with breast cancer. This is what Angelina Jolie was famously tested for and, and made you know, right. a, fairly, a fairly big decision based on her profile for that. That's uncommon. It's much more likely if you get a genetic test and says that you have a predisposition to a disease, it's like, okay, you have a 3% higher chance of getting this disease or something like that. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's a little bit worrisome that people may overinterpret that. Like you're still way more likely to die by getting hit by a car than getting this disease that you're concerned about. So I think that's part of the reason I think the FDA came down on 23andMe and saying like, you're giving them too much information and people are not, you know, they don't have the background necessary to interpret this as well as yet. And as a result of that 23andMe now has scaled back dramatically the amount of information they give in terms of health risks because of that. And most of what they do report now are sort of the, those big effect things like the BRCA1, BRCA2 popular mutations. Uh, privacy aspects are really big too, because like you said, I mean, there is this Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act, which was passed into law back in 2008, that, for example, employers can't require you to take a genetic test. They can't, you know, they can't use information from a genetic test. Insurers can't demand a genetic test, things like that. But it's specific in terms of where that's applied. So for example, I don't believe that GINA affects long-term care insurance. And imagine, for example, some insurer gets a hold of a genetic test and says, you're, you're predisposed to getting Alzheimer's. They're probably really not going to want to give you long-term insurance. So mm-hmm. that, I believe, would not be covered. And honestly, there's always a chance that GINA could go away. I know, I know some lawmakers have recently pushed for scaling back parts of GINA. So, <laughs> okay, great. You never know what will happen in the future. So it's definitely something to be aware of and cautious about. 
Well, now I'm worried. <laughs> <laughs> no, wait, wait, or more. The punchline I was going to say, I, I paused right there. What I was about to say is, like, realistically, though, I mean, I don't see people using most of that information because it's a lot of effort to get it and interpret it from even the other side from you know to misuse it still takes a lot of effort too at least right now so i think in the short run it's probably going to be fine i just worry more what things are going to be like a decade from now yeah and we've uh, we've talked a lot uh on this show about things like big data and uh just corporations you know utilizing and uh, making money off of uh, people's data collecting it en masse and not necessarily even knowing what they can use it for but you know once they've got it they've got it and then they can sort yeah. of implement it in whatever scheme they've got going on later Excellent. So anyway, protect yourself. Uh, yes. That's the, that's the rule. Well, Dr. Noor, thanks so much for joining me today for this talk. It's, I mean, it's been fascinating, and I think it's really interesting to see real-world examples of some of the things that are explored in Star Trek. Uh, let people know where they can find you online. Sure. I'm on Twitter at M-A-F, like Frank Noor, and like November O-O-R. And you can also just Google my Duke uh, University website if you just Google my name, Mohammed Noor, and like November O-O-R. Great. And where can people get your book, Live Long and Evolve? Uh, I think it's pretty much at any bookseller. It's, it's on Amazon. There's, an, there's a, an audiobook version on Audible. I'll leave a link in the show notes where people can find the book. And it, it really is a fascinating read, and you make it very fun and digestible. Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you. Thanks for interviewing me, too. I had a pl- it was a pleasure chatting with you. Thanks again to Dr. Noor for talking with me. He is a very accomplished scientist and educator and uh, he's got no business talking to me <laughs> and uh, my, my two-bit podcast, but I, I really appreciate it. And it's fascinating. I think the science behind Star Trek is what makes it great or one of the things that makes it great. Um, I was actually having an email or excuse me, a Twitter exchange with uh, Trek Facts uh, on Twitter uh, that we've talked about before on the show. And he was telling me that the show was originally kind of pitched as possibly being uh, a balloon show. <laughs> I've talked about this on this show. Um, the idea that Gulliver's Travels was a big uh, inspiration. And so at one point, uh, Roddenberry was trying to pitch to Herb Solo that they were going to have, he was going to fly. Captain Gulliver would fly from island to island, you know, in his balloon and find all these weird lands. And it's like, well, it could have been a good show, but uh, I think that this is probably uh, the way to go. The sci-fi approach to that, that pitch. Because that way we have aliens and we can speculate on their genetics and all that kind of fun stuff. Which is what Dr. Noor does in his book, Live Long and Evolve, what Star Trek can teach us about evolution, genetics, and life on other worlds. And it's a fascinating book and it's a fun read. He really picks apart, uh, in a good way, uh, some of the Trek episodes from every era. And kind of goes over their science, what they get right, what they don't. Uh, but like I said in the interview, he's, uh, he's a little too nice sometimes. But he's an educator. <laughs> he is encouraging. He's not trying to smack you down. So you definitely need to check out this book. And you can... I've got a link to the book in our show notes. Click that link or click through our Amazon banner on enterprisingindividuals.com. When you click through our links or our banner on enterprisingindividuals.com and you shop on Amazon, a percentage of your transaction comes back to us at no extra cost to you and helps keep the warp core lit here. And this counts for anything. It's not just Star Trek stuff. In fact, you can bookmark the banner and when you click through to Amazon that way, whatever you buy, the same deal applies. It's a great way to help support the show. Anytime you shop on Amazon, click through enterprisingindividuals.com and shop away. And maybe you're saying, I don't need a book on Star Trek and genetics. I'm Biotrekkie. To which I would say, 
I don't think you're bio-trekkie. I can't really say how I know, but I'm pretty sure you're not. But I'd also say, if you like what you hear on Enterprising Individuals and you want to support the show, why not head to our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash EISDpod. It's there that you can sign up to be a crew member for the show for a small monthly amount, and you can get access to exclusive subscriber content. You can sign up at either the $1 level or the $5 level. If you want to throw us $1 a month, that's just $12 a year, you'll join our crew at the cadet level, which means you get access to our subscriber content, including live shows, like our live show with Measure of a Man writer Melinda Snodgrass at last year's Convergence. You also get my DS9 rewatch recaps, which are starting back up again this year. And new for this year, God help me... My Star Trek Voyager recaps. That's right, we're headed to both the Gamma Quadrant and now the Delta Quadrant as well, and you can hear all of that if you're a subscriber. If you subscribe at the $5 level, you can join our crew at the rank of Ensign, and you get access to the rewards from previous tiers. Plus, you get access to some of our newest features this year. Sometimes my guests are so engaging that our talks go significantly beyond the one-hour mark that we usually try to keep them to. And sometimes our conversations go far afield from the subject of Star Trek. $5 subscribers to our Patreon will get to hear the outtakes from those interviews. Stuff that was a real hoot, but it didn't make the cut. So if you want to hear David George talking about the Robert Durst case, or Alan Gratz and I talking about who's the best X-Man, or just hours of me begging David Mack to spill his secrets about his various Trek projects, then this is the tier for you. You also get access to Stellar Commentaries, our feature where we riff on classic episodes of the original series. I, I love the original series, but... I mean, it can get pretty goofy sometimes. And we're recording audio tracks that you can play along with your copy of an episode, kind of riff track style. And if that somehow wasn't enough, if you contribute at the $5 level, you'll get sneak peeks at what's coming up on the show. You'll receive enterprising individual stickers and a welcome letter, and we'll thank you live on air for your contribution. Like our newest patron, Judy Unish. Judy joined the show at the $5 tier at the rank of Ensign. Welcome, Judy. And full disclosure, Judy is my aunt, so I may outrank her, but it doesn't mean I have any authority over her. I think the standard unit of donation is the price of a cup of coffee, right? So for the price of one latte a month, you can join our Ensign tier. For the price of a latte slowly sipped over the course of six months, you can become a cadet. So please consider contributing to the show. We currently have a monthly goal, which if reached, uh, I'll do a Patreon Q&A episode and we'll have a poll for a listener-selected episode that we will actually cover on the show. So get involved. Join the crew of the USS Enterprising Individuals. Just head to patreon.com forward slash EISTpod. Anyone can join our crew. Whether or not you're a coffee drinker, all are welcome at patreon.com forward slash EISTpod. And as always, the best way to support the show is to tell a friend. Anything you contribute to the show will be appreciated and will help keep us flying. Thanks. Our top comment on social media this week comes from Twitter user Anita Bischoff at at Gemini underscore 53. Anita tweeted in response to last week's episode, quote, just wanted to say how much I love the conversation you had with Lee Sargent on the Devil in the Dark show, end quote. Thanks, Anita. I'm, I'm so glad that I finally connected with Lee. Uh, it only took me experiencing practically how the international dateline works, uh, but we figured it all out. Uh, spoiler alert, they're a day ahead of us, basically. Uh, but when he picked the devil in the dark to talk about, I thought, okay, sure, uh, classic ep, uh, the Horda, got it. But he really made a believer out of me with the idea that that episode is just pure, unadulterated Trek, like right from the source. It, it really is a fun episode. And it was a fun talk with him, and I definitely need to get him back on the uh, on the program soon. Um, us Farscape fans have to stick together. Um, but 
listeners, please check out his ongoing Star Trek art project, Star Trek 365, featuring fan-created Trek art. It's at StarTrek365.com. One program he will not be on because of the aforementioned international dateline is Discoverage, our live Star Trek Discovery recap show. Every Thursday night, live at 9 p.m. Central, I and my co-host Ella Pearson are joined by a special guest to discuss the latest episode of Star Trek Discovery. These live shows have been so much fun to do, and we hope that you'll join us on Thursday nights if you can. Watch the episode on CBS All Access. They usually drop at 7.30 p.m. Central, uh, maybe a little before. Then chill for a little bit, get a beverage, come back, join us on Discoverage to hear our thoughts and analysis of that night's episode. You can follow us on Twitter to get a notification of when we're live, or you can listen to the show directly from our Spreaker page. If you can't join us live, no worries. All Discoverage shows are still available the day after in our show feed. But if you do listen live, tweet to us at at EISTpod with the hashtag Discoverage and get your comments read on the air. Make your voice heard. Make it heard by following us at EISTpod on Facebook and Twitter and join our Facebook group, Enterprising Interlocutions, where we have deeper discussions about the kind of topics that we explore on the show. Back to Anita. Thank you for your comment. For top comment this week, you win an unlimited supply of dead octopuses. And hopefully you'll get to use them soon, if not this April, maybe next year. Don't stop believing. And that's it for this supplemental episode of Enterprising Individuals. If you're an Apple Podcast listener and you haven't yet, why not look us up on Apple Podcasts and make sure that you're subscribed to the show. Also, write us a little review if the spirit moves you and give us a rating at the very least. We'd appreciate it. If you're not an Apple Podcasts user, you can still subscribe to the show on Google Play or Stitcher or wherever you get our show from. And if you leave positive comments and ratings and reviews on those platforms as well, we would be eternally grateful. Next week on Enterprising Individuals, exploring space is dangerous. You could get sucked into a black hole, get blown up by a supernova, or you could trip into a flower bed and be summarily executed by a bunch of Coppertone models. Hold on to your hats, because Stuart Hollis and Thad Haight of the Delta Flyer podcast join the show next week to talk about an early episode of Star Trek The Next Generation that promises consequence-free play, but delivers summary judgment at the end of a needle. It's justice, next time on Enterprising Individuals. And until then, I'm your Captain Caliban, signing off and saying live long and prosper. <laughs>